Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of Revelation, chapter number three. Revelation, chapter number three. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' address to the church at Sardis, the fifth of seven specific churches addressed here in Revelation two and three. Among the many things we learn here in the letter to the church at Sardis is that looks can be deceiving, but you can't always judge a book by its cover. Sometimes things aren't what they seem to be. To the outside observer, the church at Sardis had a lot of great things going on. It seemed that things were healthy and whole and right. There's benevolence, presumably, on the part of the church toward the community around them. There is gathering for worship. There is the singing of songs. There is probably even the preaching of the word. On the outside, things looked really good. But the reality for the church at Sardis, according to Jesus' assessment, is that the church is itself dead. And we talked last week about what it might have been like to be in one of those churches and to hear the letter read and to hear the name of your church read aloud and to anticipate Jesus' assessment of your church. And here, again, Jesus says, I know your works and I know your reputation. It's good. But the reality is that you are dead. This is a harsh reality. This is a sermon, this is a passage that weighs heavy on my heart because of how imperceptible spiritual deadness can be. And the reality that where we live, our culture is given to affirming as life that which is in reality spiritually dead. And even the tendency to identify churches as living bodies when the assessment from heaven's perspective is just the same as it was for the church at Sardis. They are dead. Jesus gives a similar assessment of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He refers to them there as whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Great attention, time, and detail had been given to the building, the construction, the crafting of that tomb to stand as a monument to the life of the deceased. They would be whitewashed, which was to keep them neatly maintained. They would be well adorned. But that could not change the internal reality that that tomb was home to dead men's bones. The same is true of Sardis. On the outside, it all looks good. But that does not change the internal spiritual reality that they are themselves a dead church. And the challenge for us this morning is to take note of how imperceptible spiritual death can be. To examine ourselves, to see that we individually are in the faith. Dead churches are comprised of individual dead members. So we must guard ourselves, right? Be sensitive to the direction of the Spirit, aware and honest and forthright about our own shortcomings, lest we suffer the same drift and ultimate fate as the church at Sardis. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Jesus says here in chapter 3 and verse 1, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, 
I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert, strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I've not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, I will come like a thief. You will have no idea what hour I will come against you. But you have a few people in Sardis who've not defiled their clothes, and they walk with me in white because they're worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes, and I'll never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Like several of the other cities mentioned here in Revelation 2 and 3, Sardis enjoys a position of prominence and a rich history. A historical background that in my mind informs in great ways what Jesus has to say to the church itself. Sardis used to be, before the time of John the Apostle, the capital of the Lydian Empire. They worshipped in Sardis the goddess Lydia, and they reckoned the Caesar to be the son of Lydia. So they worshipped Lydia, the mother god, and they worshipped Caesar, the sun god, S-O-N god, son as in son of God. The city itself sat atop a 1,500-foot rock acropolis. It's made for easy defensibility. They presumed upon the ease with which their city would be defended at a couple of points along the way in history. One side of the city was just a 1,500-foot rock wall, a rock cleft. In the time of Cyrus, the Persian king that's mentioned in the Old Testament, Persia came against the city of Sardis. And they presumed upon the defendability of the city so much so that they forgot to post a watchman at the 1,500-foot wall. And in night, the Persians climbed up the rock wall one by one and positioned themselves to ultimately overthrow the city of Sardis the next day. It's that event in the history of the city that I believe stands in the background of Jesus' warning that if you don't wake up and repent, I will come to you as a thief in the night and no one knows the hour at which I will come. One of the chief crafts, one of the chief trades in the city of Sardis, a wealthy city, was, was clothing, garments, specifically dyed garments. And that seems to appear later as Jesus offers a reward for those who remain steadfast and faithful. It's a comfortable, affluent environment, the kind of environment that is conducive to growing cold, spiritually indifferent. Comfort has a way of anesthetizing us toward the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the great shortcomings of one of the greatest blessings that we enjoy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not always the best environment for being sensitive to our deep dependence on the Lord. I thank God for it. But we in our sin can take a tremendous blessing from God and turn it into a mess in a heartbeat. The city of Sardis was similar. And that they had been afforded great wealth and tremendous comfort, this would fail to serve their ultimate spiritual benefit. In fact, one might argue that it actually was to their detriment. Jesus addresses himself in verse 1, speaking of himself, setting up the letter, his address to the church at Sardis, as the one who has the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. With each of these introductions, with each of these self-addresses from Jesus, we've connected them back to Revelation chapter 1 and that initial vision that John receives. There's a little wrinkle here in that one of the ways Jesus refers to himself comes not from the initial vision, but from the introductory passage in Revelation chapter 1. In verse 4, the Bible says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the seven spirits before his throne. And in looking at that passage now several weeks ago, we noted that this is just an apocalyptic way of saying the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The letter comes from Jesus, the Son of God, who has before him the third person of the Godhead. The fullness of the Spirit of God abides before the throne of Jesus. Jesus, again, speaks of himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The answer as to the imagery of the seven stars, again, comes from chapter 1. The Bible says in chapter 1 and verse 20, the secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the seven churches. Now at that time, looking at that passage, as you may remember, we questioned whether angels in the passage is a reference to actual angels, spiritual beings we tend to think of first and foremost when we think of the language of angels or if an alternate translation ought be considered here, which would simply say messenger. The question where the rubber meets the road is, is Jesus speaking of the pastors, bishops, elders, leaders of the church? Or is Jesus speaking of angels who have been assigned in the spiritual realm to the protection and leadership of those earthly churches? And we talked about the flexibility of apocalyptic imagery. It can be a little bit of both mingled together. The more I look at this, specifically verse 1 of chapter 3, the more I am convinced that Jesus has in view here angels who have been assigned in the spiritual realm to providing for and protecting over the churches identified here in Revelation 2 and 3. Now think for a moment how this lays the theological foundation for Jesus' address to the church. Jesus is addressing spiritual deadness in the church. And spiritual life can only be restored where there is spiritual deadness by the power of the Spirit of God. Spiritual deadness defined is the absence of the power of God's Holy Spirit. And a spiritually dead church is a church that is inactive, is passive, is powerless or impotent in the spiritual realm. They may be engaged in some degree of warfare in flesh and blood. But there is no meaningful spiritual activity or engagement on the part of the spiritually dead church. Now Jesus introduces himself here as the one who has the fullness of the Spirit... And the one who holds the angels responsible for the protection and provision of your church in the spiritual domain in his very hand. Jesus is setting himself before a spiritually dead church. Saying all you need to rectify your spiritually dead condition is found in Jesus. 
You are spiritually dead, and the only thing that can awaken you from your deadness in sin is the power of God's Holy Spirit. The only thing that can revive your activity in the spiritual realm is the influence of God's Holy Spirit, the activity of the Son of God, sovereign over heaven and all of earth. What you need is Jesus. If you're here this morning, and this is the primary concern, right? If you're here this morning and you're spiritually dead, you don't need a greater degree of determination or self-will. You need Jesus to, to enliven, to awaken you. Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can make the dead to live. Only Jesus can enliven your dead heart. This is where the sermon is burdensome for me. Because spiritual deadness is so imperceptible. I mean, even Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, there'll be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Did we not cast out demons and preach great sermons? And yet Jesus would say to them on that day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. That means Jesus is not aware of their existence. He knows the very hairs of our head. It means that there's never that intimate connection. They were spiritually dead. They never knew Jesus in a saving way. That's a dreadfully, that's a frightening, frightening thing. Spiritual deadness, unlike physical deadness, is often imperceptible. As a pastor, you often find yourself at the bedside of people who are breathing their last breath. In fact, you can often find yourself the assistant to the coroner at moving the bodies of those who have recently deceased or assisting the family in some way in, in handling the moments that follow immediately after a person breathes their last breath. It's always an eerie experience. If you've been at the bedside of a parent or a friend, someone that you love, maybe even a spouse in some cases, and you've, and you've witnessed that intangible but obviously visible thing of the spirit of life leaving a person's body. In the physical realm, th there is very little room for mistaking death with life. But you must understand that this phenomenon unique to our spiritual life is real and true and a great threat that spiritually, Death often masquerades as life. It's one of Satan's great schemes. Jesus says of the church, listen, I know your works. You have a reputation, a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This is true of individuals, individual dead people comprise individual dead churches. It's true of churches. You can look from the outside looking in and it can look good. It's true of individuals. You can look from the outside looking in and it can look good. But the spiritual reality on the inside is death. It's lifelessness. And it's so imperceptible. It is a scary, scary thing to me. It's scary to me 
because I, I fear people sitting under the preaching of the gospel, backing up this dam of God's wrath against them and hardening their hearts toward the truth and the power of the gospel, convincing themselves, deceiving themselves into believing that all is well when things could not be more wrong in reality. It's not just that we can deceive others, it's that we can deceive ourselves into believing that we are right when our hearts are black with sin, cold and dead and far from God. I know your works, your reputation for being alive, but you're dead. I was on the road last night, I was listening to a sermon from another pastor on this passage. I thought his illustration here was great. Spoke of, of the stars that we see visibly by night and the work of astronomers. Many of the stars that you see by night are as much as 30 light years away, meaning they're so far away that it takes 30 or more years for the light from that star to make it to Earth, which creates problems for astronomers because they don't really know if the star they're seeing the light from is still alive or not. You're seeing light that was cast 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, but that star burned out and is in the blackness of the cosmos and has been for 20 or 30 years. There are churches like this who once cast such a gospel light in their community, they've established for themselves a reputation for good works. In many instances, they've continued the works of 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Only those have only now become stale replicas of the spirit-enlivened gospel activities they used to be. But they're held on to as as icons, as relics from their history. The church maintains its good reputation, but the works themselves have long since lost their import or spiritual significance. This is the way it often plays out for spiritually dead churches. I was in a conversation with a pastor friend this week, and he brought up a passage I hadn't thought about in a long time, but one that is incredibly relevant for churches drifting in the direction of death. Hezekiah became the king of Judah. He's one of a handful of good kings in Judah. And Hezekiah's claim to fame, what Hezekiah did, what, what you to put on his resume in order to communicate his goodness as a king, his value, was the tearing down of the high places. Baalism and the worship of Asherah was huge in the days leading up to Hezekiah's kingship, but Hezekiah immediately came in. He was an iconoclast. He tore down the high places. He tore down the Asherah poles. He removed Baal worship. But there's this, there's this note in the Chronicles account that in addition to the tearing down of these overtly idolatrous high places of worship, he also cuts down and destroys the brazen serpent that had been constructed by Moses in the days of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. You remember that? The people of Israel rebel and God judges them by sending fiery serpents among them. And then Moses prays for the people and God says, I'm going to give you the prescription for their healing. You're going to construct this bronze or brazen serpent, put it up in the wilderness. And all they must do is go out and look upon that brazen serpent in order to be healed from the venom. 
Jesus uses this as an illustration of his own saving work. He says, I must be lifted up even as the serpent in the wilderness in order to draw all men unto me. But generation by generation, that reminder from their past became a relic that was the object of their worship. Brothers and sisters, the way we move from life to death fixating more on what has happened perhaps in our history, making relics of past experiences, fixating and focusing there, continuing the same old repetitious behaviors in the hopes of somehow conjuring the fruitfulness of our past rather than remaining sensitive to the direction of the Spirit, gospel first and foremost in our hearts. This is how deadness creeps in and settles into the life of the body. I think, I think one of the most difficult things that, that we face as pastors of the church, and one of the most difficult things perhaps that you face as individuals in life in general, is choosing the best over the better. Determining where we're going to invest our time and our efforts as individuals and as congregations. The difficult decisions to make in life are not choosing between the good and the bad. Those ought to be really black and white and easy for us to make. Challenge for us is choosing the gospel thing over the good thing. This is the budget time of the year. It's always kind of a labor-intensive season for, for me and for a lot of our pastors. They put in the work of determining what plans they have for the new year and, and building budgets. One of the big challenges is not involving ourselves in the gazillion good things we could really be a part of as a congregation. And sometimes I find myself on the giving end of difficult conversations saying, I, I know that this ministry, this mission, this activity is a good thing. I affirm the virtue of what you have a desire to do. But brothers and sisters, hear me and listen, be sensitive to this. God did not call us as individuals or as a congregation to do good things. Gospel, God called us as individuals and as a congregation to do gospel things. And the way churches move from life to death is by drifting from gospel things to good things, virtuous and noble things that eventually become a distraction to the body and their efforts at remaining enlivened for kingdom advancement. Jesus says, I know your reputation for good works. The reality is you are dead. And then he says what I, 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 want, I want you to hear with some force. He says, wake up, wake up. He says, be alert. We might likewise translate what Jesus says here as, wake up, be alert, and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I've not found your works complete before my God. Something is amiss. You're doing these works, but they're void of any gospel power whatsoever. Wake up, wake up, and strengthen what remains. He goes on in the following verse, verse 3, saying, remember, therefore, what you've received and heard Keep it and repent. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you've heard and received. Keep it and repent. You know the gist of what Jesus is saying? He's saying get back to the gospel. Just get back to the gospel. I look with some admiration at individuals or churches that seek to get back to a time that's now past. The problem is so often we don't go back far enough for many, it's a want to return to the good old days, 
to the memories of one's childhood, a Mayberry-like existence from the Andy Griffith Show. For others, it's returning to another season in history that they've, in their mind, developed into this ideal scenario or situation. For others, it's a return to a certain history in the church when your cultural preferences were points of emphasis and celebrated roundly within the body. For some, it's a want to get back to the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. For others, it's a want to get back to early church history in the season of the patriarchal fathers of the church, the early church period. And in every instance, it's a failure to go back far enough. We, we ought to go back in time to seek to reach back into the history of the church and to grab for what is good, but understand that reaching back in the history of the church and grabbing for what is best means reaching back and laying hold of the message of the gospel and staying there. Jesus says, strengthen what you have. There's this fledgling, burning fire of the gospel in the midst of your church on the cusp of death in the city of Sardis, but fan that flame. Go back to what saved you from your sin and camp there and stay there and remember the message of the gospel. What you need to persevere, what you need to be enlivened is Jesus. What you need to hold fast, what you need to remain spiritually vital is the message of the gospel. Go back there. Repent of all the good stuff you've done and go back to the gospel that recognizes that we are poor, blind, and wretched and in desperate need of the grace and mercy that can only be found in Jesus. Go back there. In the life of Abraham, there's this cyclical pattern that runs again and again and again. Abraham's going along about his journey and he often fouls it up, as you may be aware but then there's these seasons when Abraham is seeking spiritual renewal and he always circles back to the city of Bethel, that place where he first heard from God, where things were so simple, where God made his covenant. And I'm not telling you you need to take a road trip necessarily, but in your heart and mind, it is good that we circle back to the place where we met the Lord Jesus Christ from time to time. Be reminded of who we were apart from Christ and who he is and how he sought us and bought us by his redeeming blood. How he has shaped and changed our life. Go back to that place of being reminded of the power of the gospel. Remove from your sense of self-righteousness which so quickly follows after the work of God's sanctification. And take mental note that it is God who has begun and is bringing to perfection this great work of salvation in your life. Go back to the gospel and stay there and live there. Church, go back to the gospel collectively as a congregation. Stay near the gospel. The tendency is again to drift to these good things, to go off onto these things that may seem good and noble and right and just, and they may be on their face. But again, it's the good things that pull and tug at our heart that drag and draw us away. It's not, it's not bad things in my life that can have the, the strongest, the greatest stronghold in my experience. I was talking to another, another dad this week. We were, we were talking about kids' activities. Let me tell you something. It's a good thing that you be at your kids' sporting events. It's a good thing that you be at your kids' academic events. If your kids are, are musical, that you be at their musical. It's a good thing that you do all those things. But I'm going to tell you there are a few things in this world that will get into the marrow of your bones and overwhelm and consume your thoughts like your children's activities. 
I don't think any of us would deny the virtue of being involved in our kid's life, but I'm, I'm telling you, when it's not in proper balance, it will consume. The best thing you can do to love your kids the best is to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind, and to love their mother or father, as the case may be, with what heart you have remaining. Love them and love them well, and you'll find margin in your heart, in your life, to love and lead those kids with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Be careful that you do. I'm a, I'm a Mississippi guy. Been here all my life. I love Mississippi. There was a time in my life all I wanted was out. You know, kind of as a young person, you can kind of have that mentality. And then over the course of time, God sort of develops this Romans 9, heart for your own countrymen. And I, I figure I've been here this long, I might as well stay and invest where I know the culture and the strengths and, and the weaknesses. And I, I look across our state. In fact, I, I could probably make the same assessment of many states in the Bible Belt. And I cannot be convinced that a significant fraction if not nearly a majority of our churches are dead and without spiritual life. There are more than 2,000 Southern Baptist churches in the state of Mississippi alone, and I simply will not believe that 2,000 local assemblies enlivened by the power of God's Holy Spirit, having been taken hold of by the power of the gospel, could not be advancing the message of Christ's kingdom at any greater rate than we are currently experiencing. But spiritual death is imperceptible. And you simply cannot convince them that there's the absence of life because they've grown enamored with the works and the reputation they've established, whether it's a reputation rooted in reality or not. The tendency of those churches runs parallel to the tendency of individuals, convincing ourselves that because we're doing a few things, we're doing the kind of things that commend us to God when nothing could be further from the truth. Our tendency is to fixate on some good things, at least what were once good things, and to neglect to be enlivened by the power of the Spirit. I'm gonna shoehorn an issue in at this point in the sermon, and I need you to just deal with that. I'm probably gonna make a lot of trouble for myself, but I, I feel like I need to get ahead of this one because it fits into this category. I, I continue to hear murmurings in our community about our need for one of these giant crosses such as you see across the state of Mississippi. And if I don't say what I'm about to say, eventually someone is going to come to me and they're going to say, Brother Wade, we, we are just so excited about this cross and we need to get on board with this and I need your support. And, and then I'm going to have to be the bad guy in that moment and dash their dreams. Because I got to tell you, I think that's one of those activities that bears the appearance of life but belies the internal reality of spiritual death. Now, I'm not questioning the motives of those who participate in such things. That's not my business. It's not here, and I'm not involved. But I'm just telling you that sticking a cross up outside your city does not Christianize your community. It belies the spiritual reality that darkness abounds. And the only meaningful investment that can turn the tide of darkness is a deeper, full-hearted investment in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in those communities. That's where our time is best spent. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm committed as your pastor, and I hope you're committed as a member of this body, that with our time, with our talent, with our efforts, 
that what we seek to involve ourselves in as a congregation is not the erection of statues that will rust and crumble in time, but the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that yields a harvest of souls of every tribe and tongue and people gathered around the throne of Jesus, something that matters 10,000 years from now. Tendency to give ourselves to those kinds of activities while neglecting the weightier matters of the gospel. Verse four says, you have a few people in Sardis who've not defiled their clothes. They'll walk with me in white because they're worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. The idea of white clothes here would resonate with those in the city of Sardis, those who are part of the garment industry, the dyeing of clothes, but it also has some spiritual connotations specific to the city. In the city of Sardis, as was the case in many Roman cities, if your garments were sold, you would not be granted access to worship even in the pagan temples. They may have been given to filthy acts on the inside, but you would be dressed nice, neatly, and well-kempt if you were to participate in those devious and filthy acts to unfold within the walls of that temple. Jesus is saying here, you've not defiled yourself with the filth that carries on within those temples, nor have you stained your garments with the unrighteousness of the day, but have kept yourself undefiled You have walked with me. You have achieved the status of worthy. He goes on in verse 5. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. For the victor, he receives the white robe. His name is in the book of life and will never be erased. Now, it's interesting to me how quickly some can jump on verse 5 and suggest that this verse must mean that you and I can lose our salvation. Jesus says, for the victor, I will never erase your name from the book of life. I don't understand how you can derive a threat from a promise. Jesus says, I will never erase your name from the book of life of life. In fact, I think our whole understanding of the composition of the book of life can be out of sorts and out of whack. You look over to Revelation chapter 13 and verse number eight, with regards to the beast from the sea, the Bible says all those who live on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slaughtered. There's not some arbitrary process in heaven whereby God is looking upon us and the decisions that we make to determine whose name is in and whose name is out. God's not up there observing us to see if we're going to get it right today, to see if we're going to survive the great eraser in heaven, removing our name from the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't have it all sorted out, but I know that God knows the end from the beginning. This idea we have in our imagination, it's found its way into our minds by, by song. That, that the book of, of life is unwritten somehow in heaven is just wrong-headed. God set out in the foundation of the world to save a people all his own. And that's a great comfort to my heart. 
This is, again, not some arbitrary process. Our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the very foundation of the world. But that's not, in my estimation, the entire point of what Jesus says in this verse. In antiquity, as in modernity, a role would be kept of the citizens of any given city. You see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the book of life is not about eternal life. It, you could refer to it as the book of the living. You see a census taken in the days of David. You see a census in the early part of the New Testament. There would be a role kept of those living citizens of any given city or any given nation. There are really only two ways to have your name erased from the book. One is to die. There's, there's lots of opportunity for uh, political and voting jokes at this point, but I, we'll leave those off and I'll leave them to your imagination. If you die, your name is removed from the roll. The other is to commit a crime. If you commit certain crimes, your name would be re uh, removed from the rolls of ancient cities. Now, there's nothing in these verses that suggests that persecution was a great concern for the city of Sardis, at least not directly. But it seems a, a reasonable conclusion to me that Sardis would have experienced much of the same kind of pressure, the same kind of persecution that was experienced in the other six cities of Asia Minor. We're not talking about this vast land. For instance, Thyatira was the church that was mentioned before Sardis. There's almost 30 miles distance between Thyatira and Sardis. In the grand scheme of things, they're, they're effectively a part of the same community with the same points of influence, the same kind of culture, the same kind of persecutions, and the same kinds of, of pressures. But if persecution, as I suspect, was a real part of life in Sardis, it seems a strong likelihood to me that the unwillingness of a faithful Christian to worship the Son of God as they understood him, the Caesar of Rome, and the Mother of God as they understood her, Lydia of the Lydian Empire, would disqualify or discount them, could lead to their being removed from the book of the living. Their name could be removed from the role of that particular city. It seems that what Jesus is saying here is that given social pressures, the demands of the culture around you, as a faithful believer, you may be compelled to make decisions that lead to your ultimate removal from the book of the living. Your garments may be defiled. You may be downcast. You may be despised. You may not be deemed socially acceptable in your community. But remain faithful before God. And I will never erase your name from the book of life. They may take your name off the book of the living. But our names by faith in Jesus remain forever in the Lamb's book of life. It's Jesus admonishing us to live not for the praise of men, but for the good pleasure of our Father. To look to heaven's reward far before we give any consideration whatsoever to consequence that might be endured in the here and now. I will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his holy angel. The broader question of one losing their salvation really misses the mark of verse 5. 
Because the idea of your ability to lose your salvation misses the message of the gospel altogether. If you could lose your salvation, you would. In fact, you already would have today. And if God were so gracious as to give it back again, you'd lose it again. In fact, I dare that not many of us could hold on to salvation for more than a scintilla of a second. Because by our very nature, by virtue of being born under the curse of Adam, we are utterly incapable of maintaining righteousness apart from the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit in our heart. The idea that you can lose your salvation is fundamentally flawed because it assumes that you must have done something to get your salvation. Some, and this is, this is without exception, you put this many people together because this is the way we are wired to think. We are a performance-based people. There are some in this room convinced that the way I get to God is to get all buttoned up, all well-kempt, ducks in a row, and to present myself to God in a state of what I perceive to be righteousness, and surely God will embrace me. And nothing could be more antithetical to the truth of the gospel than that foolhearted, hellish, deceptive message. The reality is that you button it all up if you want. You line all those ducks in a row. You bring it all before the Father. And it'll be the filthy rags that all our works of righteousness are combined. The truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, and the power of the gospel is not an invitation that we would get our act together, but that we would gather up all of our junk, all of our shortcomings, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, all of the bumps and bruises produced by the presence of sin in our life, all of the dreadful consequences, the sickness and the disease bound up in us as a result of the curse of sin and bring it all before the cross of Calvary. And there, as weary and heavy laden people find ultimate rest in Jesus who bears our sin burden and who grants to our account his perfect righteousness. That that is the gospel, that we would believe in our heart that Jesus is God's only son, that he died in our place, that he rose again the third day, that he beckons that we would come to him, believing that message in our heart, confessing with our mouth that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. The gospel is a powerful thing. The only remedy to spiritual deadness in your life individually or in the experience of the church collectively. Jesus begins and ends here by noting that all you need to rectify your spiritual lifelessness is found in him. And I would commend him to you this morning. Taste and see that indeed he is good. Come to Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together. God, I, I pray that you would make us alive in Christ Jesus. That you would quicken our hearts, that we would discern your nearness, your will, truth and power of your word. Pray, God, that you'd give eyes to see and ears to hear.
May that be more than just a cliche way for Christians to pray. Might that resonate with the hearts of those praying even now, God. Give them eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, the power of the gospel, and their own personal condition. Help, help me to see secret sin, God. To be quick to repent. Break our hearts, God, over who we are. Bring us low. And then lift us up at the knowledge that Jesus has done all things well. Lord, we love you. And I pray that our response to your word in the moments that follow would be fitting of your goodness and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.